Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Yes, it's the Halloween edition of Save for Half, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. I am DM Mike, who will be Jerry Dandridge from the vampire movie Fright Night for this episode, because we are covering Vampire the Masquerade by Mark Reynagan and White Wolf Games. And joining me is DM Liz, who will be taking the role of Katrina from Vamp. I really shouldn't say hi, because Katrina never said anything throughout the entire movie. I suspected that's why you wanted to take her, and so then you'd just not say anything during the whole show. That's right. For the game I chose, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about it. <laughs> I'm done for the day. Bye. <laughs> cunning. Cunning. That does sound like her. We can always count on Liz to figure a way out of excessive talking. And speaking of counts... To be smarter than all of us? Yes. <laughs> yes. DM Corbett is going to be Count Von Count. Yes. On Sesame four, Street. Four podcasters. <laughs> and rounding us out in vampirism is DM Jim, who is, to the surprise of absolutely no one, <laughs> Count Chocula. Oh, because I don't like the blood. I like the chocolate and the milk. But it doesn't have any berries in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Count Chocula, the second best monster cereal. No, the very best monster cereal. Very best second monster cereal. The only monster cereal that doesn't change the color of your poop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I never noticed. But you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a funny way of getting into Vampire the Masquerade. Yes, it, we were bound to cover it sooner or later, and we're here to talk about it. All right, well, I guess we will start covering that forthwith, but first, a pod break. Oh, what a beautiful day for Frankenberry, the world's super sweet new cereal. Fui! Here's the world's super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Bicko, I've got berry flavored sweeties for monstrous strawberry flavor. Well, I've got chocolate sweeties for monstrous chocolate flavor. Frankenberry, Count Chocula. Meow. <laughs> Frankenberry, Count Chocula. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. 
sorry, sorry. sorry. That's Mike and the mechanics of the game. My bad. Mike and the mechanics. As Mike once again tries to explain the basic rules of this game without screwing up Jim's list. Mm -hmm. So, basically, this is a dice pool game. It only uses D10s, and most things are rated from 1 to 5. You put It's a point-by system. You put the various points into your attributes, your skills, and vampiric traits, which are the supernatural powers, depending on which clan you're part of. Clans are kind of like classes, but they're a lot more flexible. They're considered bloodlines, and without getting too deep into the lore of vampire, they're based on various movie and novel tropes. For instance, the Bruja are based on the Lost Boys from the Lost Boys movie of vampires, the kind of rebel without a clue vampires. There's the Toreador, who are obviously the Anne Rice vampires. There's Ventru, kind of the more expected, you know, aristocratic style vampires. Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Good evening. Who's has that weird weakness of there's one type of person they either must or can't drink from. Like the, I can only drink from virgins or I can only drink from valet parking. I don't know. Just, <laughs> just whatever. <laughs> so, but you can then buy, there are certain powers each, each one has. And the and edition if you don't want we it, read is from the nineties, right? Yep. So there's no clan of Twinkly vampires. This was pre-Twilight. Nope. Second, right. second edition was came out in 90... I want to say 93 or 94. And the, uh, the, earlier than that, I think it was 92. No, no, they came out in 92. was the first edition. Right. The Well, 92 is when it won the Origin Award. So, yeah. You know, sorry, you're doing the mic and the mechanics. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so this is really early 90s. There are no Twinkly vampires. At that time, the big hot vampire item that was out was a combination of Anne Rice's stuff and the Coppola vampire Dracula movie with Winona Ryder. So you buy your powers, you buy your traits. Basically, whenever you're trying to do something, you look at the number on your attribute, and that's how many dice you roll. You can add a skill if it applies. You can add a a trait if it applies. Those are the number of dice you roll. You usually are given a difficulty number. The default is six, but the storyteller, yes, they changed the name of the GM here. The storyteller can change that arbitrary number up or down, depending on how difficult or easy a a thing is to do. You roll your dice. If you get below that number, you succeed. Or is it no? You get if you get above that number, you succeed. If you get below that number, you fail. If you get tens, those are super successes. If you get ones, those are botches and they take away from your successes so you make your roll and if you succeed you get at least one success you've succeeded if you get more botches than successes you fail and there's kind of a critical fail like if you had four dice to roll and you rolled all four ones somehow yeah but they try to say they're a little contradictory on that sometimes i say well five botches is the same as two botches you know if you do two that's it's just a bad botch and that's that but the later on they like you said they try to imply that you can have super bad botches by having multiple dice come up bad which always struck me as odd because it struck me as well so the better you you are at something the more dice you roll so the better you are the worse you can fail Mm -hmm. huh but anyway obviously we'll get into uh, top five alert top five alert yeah yeah (laughs) so so anyway you can also have weaknesses 
and you get freebie points. You can move stuff around. I'm not going to get really detailed, but that's basically the mechanic. So now let's talk about first impressions. It's just a first impression. I could be totally wrong. It's only a first impression. And only impression is strong. It never can First impressions. We'll start with Jim. Good. Start with me. The one guy who's never played this game, and my first impression was we have a new winner. I will never bring up Time Ship again. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. You, you hated mean, this more than Time Ship? That's something. I, I'm going to be as intellectual and even keeled about this as I can. You know, there's just pretend it's a graduated cylinder. Okay. There's things outside my wheelhouse, then further up the cylinder, there are things not my cup of tea. Like, say, Pathfinder. And then there are things that I just would never, you couldn't raise enough money on GoFundMe to pay me to play the game. That's where this is for me. And, but <laughs> wow. I will try and, but it's no dent on the writing, the rules, the layout. I understand the dice pool mechanics and storytelling games. Those those are just my not cup of tea level things. But I just there's something in this I didn't get, and I am relying on the three of you who have played this game to explain to me why it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> so that's your first impression? That's my first impression. Sorry. Okay. Corbett? My first impression from 19, I don't know, 93 when I first picked it up was I hate it. (laughs) That's after I bought it. But you have to realize that I kind of grew up on pulp adventures and and, uh, uh, serial adventures and the Lone Ranger and Flash Gordon and all these two-fisted jaw-jutting heroes. And, And by the 90s, people were tired of that because, you know, good guys are boring. But people who kill people for fun are really cool. So, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? That 90s extreme. Extreme. Everything had to be extreme. Well, that was when comics became absolutely unbearable. When everything was dark and it was the end of the century and Y2K was going to destroy us all. And I remember when 2000 hit and we all died, it was terrible, but it got better. (laughs) But we had pouches, <laughs> so it wasn't all bad. So anyway, okay. my first impression was I really, really hated it. So Later on, it? I because a friend of mine really liked it, and I honestly hated everybody who else was playing it because they were all the the LARPing vampire types who wanted to live the life. And like, I I do want to live the life of the heroes I see, but I don't go out with a sword and start hacking at people because then I go to a different place. So, so hang on, hang on. Off air, I asked who had played this game before and liked it, and the three of you all said me, 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 and I was counting on that. Have I have I dark sided one of us already? I didn't like it because of the people that were playing it. That so I was, it was less the game than the players. I, I got the storytelling component, but as a world, it is dismally dark. The world, even of the, darkness. the highlight is yeah. Even the highest point in it is like eh. I guess it's it's like going to Game of Thrones for a pick me up. <laughs> like I know my hero won't die in this one, but Vampire has twenty percent less incest. That's true. <laughs> Depending on who you play may... with, your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah. Your mileage may vary. I'm sincere in not understanding this parts of this game, so I'm counting on you guys. Okay, Liz. My first impression, again, back in the 1990s when this first came out. I remember being intrigued by the game, and not necessarily because of the darkness part of it, but because the whole point of play, 
if you're doing it quote unquote right, at least in my opinion, you've become a monster, but you are trying to overcome that portion of yourself. And while it is very much like Call of Cthulhu, where you're substituting humanity for sanity and you've got that downward track, unlike Call of Cthulhu, there is a very slim hope given in Vampire to be able to succeed and to either figure out some way mystically or otherwise to become mortal again or to do something where psychologically you have managed to gain control over your baser instincts and you have managed to reach a state of being where you're still a vampire, but you don't have that horror hanging over you anymore so much. So that was one of the things that I liked about the concept at the time, was that you were starting from a low point and you had the hope of being able to climb up and gain some of that lost humanity back again somehow. I noticed you addendum that with at the time. At the time. <laughs> and that's what I want to say. That was my very first impression. Okay. It's been a really long time since I played the game. It's been a, you know 20, 30, 20 years, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been three decades. So reading the book again after so long, it's almost like I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. I still have that same thing, but there are a lot of rules and things that I either did not remember from when we were playing back in the day, or we ignored them or whatever. Yeah. But I have a much better appreciation for the structure of the game rules than I did initially at the time when I did enjoy playing the game first. Okay. What do you mean 30 years ago? It was just a, it came out in the 90s. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my first impressions. Okay. In the 90s, I didn't have a PDF copy of this I could read on the computer. So Liz had to read sections to me and she generally just read the rules section so i could understand them this is the first time i've actually read the rule book my first impression is there's a lot of fiction <laughs> a lot yep that being said this book is maybe one quarter rules maybe a third rules the other two thirds is setting and how to be a game master and that i gotta say is pretty good it, it's Got a good way of impressing upon you the need for role-playing, etc. And as written, it's an interesting exercise in role-playing. Though the little part of me that survived the satanic panic is still grumbling about how D&D got such a terrible rap, but a game where you play a monster and nobody cares. A, a bloodthirsty monster. Yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> You're drinking so, blood if you want to do anything. That's... <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, you're getting blood from somewhere. Now, you don't have to kill people to necessarily take the blood, but yeah, you've got to get blood from somewhere. So my first impressions, this really read a lot like a GM's guide that just had the rules stuck in it as well. And I suppose for a an actual rule book, that makes sense because they, they take the tact of Gygax used to have, you know, the, the players don't necessarily need to know how all the rules work. They just need to know enough to 
to play the game and, you know, you'll handle everything else for them. So that's pretty cool. And it's a nice light system. It's the first system I've come across probably a serious game that seems to have totally detached from the old simulationist attempts of role-playing games in the 70s and 80s. Interesting. That leapt over from wargaming. I don't know. I, I would question that only because the the rules, the basic stats and rules, really remind me a lot of Fudge. Well, again, a game that does that broke away, but Fudge is after Vampire, isn't it? No, oh, yeah. Fudge was yeah, yeah, before. Because yeah. Fudge was part of... Uh, what was the game system that came before that? We covered it. Um, fate. No, Fate Fate was... Fate was after. After. Fudge was fudge. before. Right, because Fudge was originally a, a free game system, I thought. According to Wikipedia, so your mileage may vary, uh, 92 for Fudge and 91 for Vampire. So, yeah. Oh, first really? So, yeah. Okay. Oh, so, fine. yeah. This is... If you trust Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> My students seem to. <laughs> Ouch. But anyway... Thousands of students can't be wrong. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. actually, they can. But anyway, all right, well, let's go into top fives. The Save for Half Top Five in five, four, three, two. Top fives. And we will start with Jim. I'm going to talk about the parts I did get and the positives, even when those positives aren't my personal cup of tea. This, as we were just talking, 91 makes this one of the first, if not the first, storytelling RPG game. It was definitely a revolutionary concept at the time. Just like you were saying, we all came out of that simulation school and dice pool mechanics. And I don't know how early it is for dice pool mechanics, but it's got to be first second or third and that too and yeah the, i think uh, star wars had dice pool but i never played star wars the, theirs adds up not here they're using a dice pool straight across dice to dice whereas in star wars it adds the whole amount ah okay so eh, maybe but kudos for those that in a, that level of innovation there's only so much you can do with d20 and and these guys what was the main guy mark rainhagen yeah 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 he he just didn't decide he wanted to do an rpg based on Anne rice or whatever he he said wait a minute let's let's change how we do this mm-hmm. so good okay. for them all right corbett pros there is a lot of pros in this book mike had mentioned this before and i will do, extract this and give it to you in a real number so the pros I- is one of the pros yeah, no, it's actually one of the negatives. It's a the, lot. The, of the pros, pros is a con. The pros is a con. <laughs> in in most RPG games, by page twenty, you know how to start creating a character, and that's a big RPG. I'm not talking old old school. I'm talking a regular one now. By page twenty, you're gonna get it. They did not get to character creation until page eighty six. So a lot of Chapter- pros. Chapter seven, how to how to actually make a character for what we just talked about for 80 pages. Yes. I'll have a comment when I, I get around to that, but that that is brave choice, brave choice. <laughs> I understand they're giving the, the context and the, the filling the world out because they do build a world, but it is a lot of prose. Okay. Liz? I will follow up on that from Corbett. Oh, I bet you would. Oh, indeed. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things that I had written down. Like Time Ship, parts of the rulebook are written in first-person narrative. Unlike Time Ship, 
it's better done. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> there's a lot more of it. <laughs> and yeah I, and that- yeah, I had noted it took 21 pages to get past the initial narrative flavor text and into the starting to get into the rules. There's more prose there than the entire timeship rule book, and that includes the three adventures. <laughs> <laughs> And this was something that Mike and I mentioned before we started officially recording the episode. Because we had played in the past and we played with some other groups, it's like, yeah, a lot of the rule book is concerned with evoking the setting and the tone that they want a typical vampire game to have. It may seem to be a bit much, but in my own experience playing vampire, very few games actually manage or even seem to attempt <laughs> to create the suggested tone mm. or mood. It's like, <laughs> despite the tremendous effort, and I do mean tremendous, made to communicate the mood within the book, a lot of the games I wound up participating in either felt like D&D Let's go kill them and take their stuff. Or like supers, but all the supers are vampires. And so even though they spent pages upon pages with this, clearly it was not enough. <laughs> Team Diablery. Liz, yes. I, I'm just I'm just curious, Liz. You played Toriador, didn't you? I've I've made various characters, but I will admit Confess. the very first <laughs> character I made was a Toreador caitiff. She was actually a weird kind of hybrid. You split class. Ugh. Yes, yes. <laughs> she was killed by a Nosferatu, but brought back by a Toreador, so she had a and little bit of each. So, so weird things happened because of that. <laughs> but but yeah. yeah. I've never been prouder of you than figuring out how to do a split character class in this game. <laughs> <laughs> like when, when you were like 12 or 13. <laughs> I wasn't that young. (laughs) Yeah, she's right. I I still remember Walker talking about how he was running a game and everybody's talking about, well, what's the minimum uh, humanity you can have where you could still kill people and it's all right? Uh And he said, four. And he said, you could hear across the table the sound of erasers. Erase, 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 erase. I'm good. And then they're all hiding outside the Elysium, the neutral ground. They're hiding behind the dumpster, waiting for like an elder to come out and take a whiz or something so they can (laughs) jump him and diablerize him so they can go up in power. Like, really, guys? Really? (laughs) Or the elders game? Yeah, the elders game where we were just wandering around and going into people's houses and like beating them up, even though we're supposed to be elders. And I I just couldn't, I couldn't wait to see Uh. a game like that where an elder comes outside and like, well, I just have to take a wheeze. And (laughs) wait a minute, I don't have to wheeze. (laughs) Like Samson and the Vampire Women when the guys jump up (laughs) holding their capes up as they beat them up with the with the flashlights. That that was always the image in my head when. And that was described. I'm like, oh, oh wow, goodness. dude. Seriously? Seriously. See, see, Jim, you missed out see, on all the fun. See, see, now <laughs> it sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my five. Again, I'm going to play on the, the text thing. And yes, lots of pros. Unlike a lot of other role-playing games, this game tries to set a default campaign setting real hard right out the gate. 
It's like buying second edition D&D and the player's handbook had nothing but Forgotten Realms stuff in it. I mean, it locks you into its campaign world. Or even those people to this very day that are playing those hardcore Greyhawk settings. You're playing Greyhawk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I see what they were doing there. And yes, the for gamers, the pros and the setting stuff well before the actual rules was irritating. But the audience they were aiming for, which was, frankly, goths who probably haven't gamed, that I think yep. was a smart idea. Because like any fiction, they, you catch them in the first chapter or two. If you can't hold them for that, then they're gone. And if you started right with the rules before you went into the text and the setting, I think you would have lost a lot of people. So while I agree, it's irritating. For their audience, I see why they did it. And we can't argue with success. You know, the 90s vampire was it. TSR felt the pressure so much they ended up making Ravenloft a campaign setting. So they could try and compete. And gosh, how many spinoff games were there? You know, Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, Mage the Ascension, Wraith the Oblivion, Changeling the, the Dreaming. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, but they all tiered on the idea that something was going to happen in 2000. And once that happened, the actual game kind of died off for a little while. At least. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, then they came out with the third edition, Vampire the Requiem, where you were yeah. kind of it's afterwards and you're like, staggering. Remember when we were all going to die? Whoops. We did. <laughs> but in this world, we did. <laughs> sort of. I, I could But see now they're that. on the fifth so, edition. They've really gone far with it. Yeah. yeah. But it's not as big as it was. No. In the 90s, Our, it was huge. Well, yeah. Well, you had the goth movement. That helped a yeah. lot. Wasn't the 90s when LARPing started getting big too, in more traditional D&D terms? So... The, the reputation yeah. I knew this game by was I didn't even think you played it at a tabletop before I read the rules. I thought it was all yeah. getting a cause. I, I based it on uh, old Knights of Dinner table comics. <laughs> you know, my, my you view of it. the Black Prince of Muncie. What yeah, yeah. So, done? <laughs> and then, you know, getting dressed up in costume, which is like you guys were in Society for Creative Anachronisms. That's some, but that's other people's jams too. So, yeah. Yeah, but they didn't do it out in, at a 7-Eleven much. <laughs> They did it at Golden Triangle Mall down here in Denton. <laughs> Wandering around the well, mall. They got banned. No, I just, vampire, though. Vampire was every... In, in San Francisco, the area was just saturated with it. Everybody loved doing it live. Oh, yeah. And it was... uh Yeah. So, Jim. Five. Four. Sorry. <laughs> My number four is just me trying to figure out why this game was such a Rubik's Cube for me to understand. I can read stuff outside my wheelhouse. Gazetteers and settings are not my thing because I'm a do-it-yourself guy. That's just the way I'm wired. And you're into a matter of taste. So for the people that love gazetteers, buying them up and running those things, great on you. But I, So I'm looking for what the in is that I can't find. So my process on this was, there's a magic to what Dungeons & Dragons in, invented. That player group of adventuring party that's sort of like Tolkien, except more murder hobo. You know, there's a magic to that dynamic, and that's that's why almost everything can be, in my opinion, measured by how it's similar to D&D or dissimilar. And there have been a lot of innovations and things that are dissimilar to it, but you have to be careful when you break the molds. Liz, this is what happened to us that was similar to what you were talking about earlier. We got D&D and played it. Then, you know, my brother was the DM. I got Gamma World and ran that for years, and then we played it. Then Henry got Boot Hill, and 
none of us were enough, you know, Western genre fanatics that we just went about trying to turn Boot Hill into D&D. We're out there with nitroglycerin and shotguns, tossing dynamite sticks, trying to do fireballs. And it was worse when I took up Champions because the Venn uh, overlap between gamers and comic book fans did not apply to my old gaming group. I was the only one. So they showed up with, you know, like Super Wizard and Super Dwarf as characters so we that's those are all like stupid examples but i'm looking at this game and i think my problem with it is this is written anyway to be like an evil campaign that i could even hang with on a short-term basis for a one-off but i if there are no heroes and there aren't even anti-heroes everybody's just one of the undead going around trying to resource manage their humanity mechanic like you have to do with your sanity and call of cthulhu that's not something that, that that I enjoy, but I'm only reading it. I'm not, I haven't played it. I haven't played it with people I liked, like you guys did. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say, you're exactly right. You can't argue with success. I know this. Yeah. thousands of people have played and enjoyed this game. Part of the in-joke humor of this world, they developed, they had their version of White Wolf as an actual company in this world called Black Dog. They even put out their games in this world. I think it was called Leech the Sucking or yes. something like that. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. And, and it was described as tragically hip anti-heroes who bemoan their fate while blowing away the uncool mortals around them. <laughs> and I just love that description. I thought that tragically hip. Oh, that is so awesome. So they could certainly laugh at themselves. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Remember when they were describing the, the the Black Dog Game Company offices? Oh, in the break room? The, the horrible filth and despair of the break room that was actually a monster living up in the ad, in the crawl space area above it with this filth and, and crap everywhere. But they were sure to say, the inside of the microwave is sparklingly clean. Wow, that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Four, Corbett. I would actually say, I would actually counterpoint Jim a little bit. Please, I'm asking for it. No, not so much like I'm defending it for real, but I will say there are levels of bad in the game. And yeah, you're pretty much still bad. So I can't defend that very well, but there are really, really bad things in the world that vampires stop. But they're also part of the problem, too. So you you kind of, in a very, very just delicate tissue way, are a hero compared to what's worse. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of like what Liz was saying. You know, there is hope. It's a faint hope. But there is hope for you to try to ascend to that by being more humane. Or their use, it, it kind of did. But I'll get to that. Well, right. When in Call of Cthulhu, once your sanity shot, you're done, right? But in this game, right. you can go into it. I can't pronounce the word. T u p o r a torpor. Torpor. Yeah. yeah, that works. The sleep. My mouth was yeah. going to do that. You can go into yeah. one of those and heal back up, and you know, unless take you another hit run. zero, yeah, unless you hit zero humanity, in which case you pretty much like a zero sanity, you become a non-player character. Yeah, yeah, you're out of the you're game after that. Monster. Yeah, you're all or you were. But I'll get to that. Not in this book, but some of the supplements they did. But so, all right. Anything else, Corbett? No, no, just vague defensive. It's sort of heroes, kind of, generally, okay. mostly. <laughs> Don't take my word for it, but it, it, it's kind <laughs> of that way. Okay, Liz. One of the things that they do talk about within the book is the concept of rebirth. And 
It's all about escaping the curse and becoming mortal again. They state very specifically, rebirth is never possible to accomplish through the rules, but must instead be a primary element of the story and a part of the role-playing. So it's very, very hard, and it may not happen. It, or if it does happen, it may be, you know, you've done something really, really heroic. You've sacrificed yourself for somebody else. And at the moment, you know, right before your death, the curse is lifted, and you have at least died human again rather than a monster. You know, it could be something like that. They make sure to present that hope. But it's not going to be a gimme. They expect it to be something that's possibly a goal throughout the entire campaign, as opposed to, okay, well, you know, three sessions in, hey, you know, you know. <laughs> or like Mike was complaining off air about the ending of Near Dark. It's not just a simple blood transfusion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there's a line in the book, and I'm paraphrasing. Goth punk, which is the baseline for this game is goth punk is so intricate it can't be fully explained in this book which i interpreted as so we're going to publish a bunch of more books for you to buy (laughs) and maybe you'll find out then but yeah do you need any other books to run this game no but if you're going to you need to get the clan books and some of the other stuff but talking about the heroic part just like anything else you're a vampire, you're a monster, you're a bad guy. So for someone to fight, they give you something even worse, which is called the Sabbat, which are a faction of vampires who don't even try to keep humanity anymore. They're utter monsters, murdering psychopaths, sadomasochistic weirdos that you're expected to try to fight because your clans are all supposed to be part of something called the Camarilla, which are Vampires that hide in the shadows, they don't advertise themselves, they manipulate moral society from the quiet. But Savat are like, screw it, let's do whatever we want, humans can't stop us. And so they're constantly fighting in the background, to, so you have somebody even worse to deal with. And talking about the humanity thing, something that really irritated me is they make it very plain when you get to zero humanity, you're a non-player character. Well, apparently... They decided later on in a book to give you an exception to that, the Sabbat, because people wanted to play the Sabbat, even though they're the even worse. Uh-huh. In the Sabbat book, they say, well, there's these certain philo- philosophical paths you can follow. And even if you have a zero humanity, if you're following these paths, you could still be a player character, which to me was just an out to let you act like an utter monster and just utterly terrible. And why would you even play with these people? I don't know. Because it's fun. <laughs> well they think it's fun anyway and that's the disturbing part okay three jim i'm i'm still troubled by this game in that it's very close to a genre licensed property i've talked on many episodes of the show that there are game design problems when you do that when you do the star trek license or the star wars license or the doctor who license or whatever they made a tv show off this yeah yeah Uh, this could just as well be true blood the art role-playing game right when you do a license like that you get trapped into these storytelling strictures that affect something that's meant to be a group role-playing game experience like who's going to be the captain of the starship okay you're 
start playing this game, you're a bunch of, uh, you've done your prelude. Now you're a functioning junior level vampire who may or may not have your boss vampire still in the picture. As a group, you're going to go do some of these things that that you're talking about. I was gladdened when Liz, you said, okay, well, that was may have been what we set out to do, but we pretty much ended up doing D&D vampire. That would be a natural reaction. I would love to get an inside peek to these people that were playing the hell of this game in the 90s that did the robes and the, and the things like that. Because I just don't understand how that works. And I'm very much trapped in my own viewpoint. Because I know bunches of people have fun doing that. Mm-hmm. It's dystopian. And I don't enjoy dystopian settings. And I wrote a post-apocalyptic game, but I threw it 10,000 years in the future so it could be a jungle planet with ruins. And to my taste, fun. Like other things closer to D&D, Dark Sun. I've never played Dark Sun ever in my life, nor would I in a million years, because I don't have fun playing in a world where everything's bad and broken and your your best shot is just uh, not dying. Another setting created in the 90s. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ben Riggs' book was super informative, too, because I love the art. And I'm sorry, this was my actual number three. The problem is, I, it's not like I don't enjoy these things. I, I lo- couldn't get enough of Tomb of Dracula, comic book by uh, Steve Gerber when I was a kid. Or Dracula's the hero, yeah. Well, he's not a hero, but you're reading about him. But he's Dracula the hero the... of the comic, is what I Protagonist mean. Is Protagonist. Protagonist, sure, yeah. But, but he's a singular guy, you know. You can't do a whole role-playing game where everybody's Dracula or a comic book story where it's five Namor, the Prince of Atlantis's, or five Time Lords. I mean, you could. I just don't know how that would work. I don't know how you design for that. So I, I at least give them credit for they figured out something because a bunch of people love this. I just It's so outside my ken. Okay. Corbett? I like character creation. Character creation is quick, fast, easy. Mm-hmm. All you have to have is an idea. And even then, if you don't have an idea, you can pretty much still make a character. It's really not hard. Yeah. Yeah, they pretty much walk you through yeah. creating an idea if you don't necessarily have one to begin with. Yeah. And by second, I think second edition over first edition, they put the template into the character sheet. So you barely even needed the book other than to look up like what powers do what and things like that. But you quickly have like the primary, secondary, and tertiary stats. You just throw your dots in. There's no there's no numbers to write down. It's all dots. So it's really quick. And I, I, I did really like that about the game. It's yes, like filling in a Scantron. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just like the Scantron, I fill in random and just throw it at the DM. Yeah. <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> okay. Liz? My number three... One of the things that I enjoyed the most about Vampire when I played it back in the day is that it was specifically geared for small groups of players. They say five people at the most, and that the game's sweet spot would be a storyteller and three players, and that is my personal ideal. I love that size group where I am one of the three players. And it's like, (laughs) I love small groups. I feel like you get more interaction and role playing and people are less likely to be left out accidentally. That was one of the strengths for me personally, is that this is, you are encouraged to do small groups with this game. My three, I like nature and demeanor. Hmm. It's to a degree, it's how I've always run most of the time alignments in D&D as a guideline rather than a rule. But I particularly like the idea of this is how you really are, your nature, as opposed to the demeanor that you show everyone else in public or you know around you. 
And they can be the same thing, or they can be very different. Well, but these are role-playing guideline. Yeah. And for a game like Vampire, where intrigue and treachery and that sort of thing is part of the whole shtick, that's really cool. I like that system. All right, Jim, two. I agree. I thought that part was insightful because you could line them up or you could try for ambiguity and do the opposites. I'm out, guys. I got no more to say about this game. I want to be a listener and listen to you guys talk the game up. Is that allowed? Can I? Can, it, can that be my number two? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, as opposed to I could sit here and keep trying to write a master's thesis. I'm not talented enough to write on the psychological <laughs> dynamics of play style preference and personality type, but I don't want to do that. Mm. I want to listen to you guys. Okay. You can talk about the art. You said you like the art and the layout. That's You're true. definitely qualified for that, even if you didn't read oh, well, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Corbett. My number two is I, I really like the sort of Mike Mignola gritty black and white presentation. I, you know, you could mm. pick the reviewed the second edition that came out in the mid-early 90s. You could um, look at that today, and it still looks fresh and modern. It's simple. It's it's black and white. It, it They didn't overdo the, the craziness and all the things where everything has to be slick, colored, computer-done art they do now i liked it a lot stark very sort of frank miller mike mignola yeah mike mignola is a great example i didn't even think about how it's like it does have a certain like that black that hard black and shadow use it's uh it definitely sells the setting yeah it does okay corbett you mentioned this earlier and i just want to clarify it for people yes it's idiotic that if you have a high level character with a lot of dice in something there's a very good chance you're going to fail miserably a lot because of the odds. Because the more dice you have, the more probability you have to roll ones, the more chances you roll ones, the more things mess up. And that's one thing that's kind of, it, it does the same problem in uh, Star Wars. In Star Wars, it does a dice pool, but you have one wild dice, and when it rolls one, something wacky happens. You know, the hyperdrive stops, or, you know, 3PO's leg falls off, or whatever. And, you know, Yoda jumps out and whirls his lightsaber and then rolls a one and actually stabs himself in the foot and kind of loses that wow he was a master <laughs> it's the same problem with this where you have so many dice you essentially become terrible at something <laughs> yeah okay so play at low levels <laughs> <laughs> all right liz the rules also try to bring home the fact that one of the main things that a game master or storyteller should be trying for is making sure that people are having a good time at their table. And on the flip side of the coin, they also try to bring home the tenant for the players. You should be cooperating with each other. There's even one sentence which I thought was fantastic, and I don't even remember reading it when I first got the game, but it really jumped out at me doing the read-through before doing the show. At one point, they say, it is your responsibility to create a character who fits into the group. If you fail to get along with mm. the others and disrupt the story because of it, you will have to create a new character. But I want a, a black-clad orphan that always sits in the back corner and never talks to anyone. Oh, that's fine, as long as you're not disrupting the story by doing it. <laughs> you just spend the whole game at the local Elysium. You that's know? right. You can just sit there and everybody else does stuff. You know, but... So, yeah, I just really liked that they came right out and explicitly said, if you're being a disruptive influence 
with the character that you have created, GTFO. You know, yeah. it's like <laughs> drain your victim's blood, but don't be a dick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still lose humanity for murdering people, even if you're doing it to drink blood. So I thought that was cool. But anyway, my number two, it's got a whole chapter on drama. Drama a whole chapter, which at first kind of knocked me like, oh my God, why would you read a whole chapter on drama? But then as I went through it, it's like, you know, if I was never a GM before, this had some really good stuff in it. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff about pacing and things like that. It's like, huh, yeah, you know. And getting back to what Jim was talking about with the LARPing, there's a lot in here that freely admits it borrows from LARPing. It's kind of an almost an intermediate stage between tabletop and LARPing. You're still at the tabletop. You're not expected to actually do anything or wear costumes, but you're encouraged to speak first person and to gesticulate and speak as, in a real role-playing method. Wait, like a human would do? Yeah, like a human <laughs> being rather than just third person. My character does this, my character says that, my character does blah. And that's how I learned to role play from the beginning with D&D back in 1980. So I had already done that, but I never found a game until this that intentionally promoted that type of role play. So I thought that was pretty cool. And Jim's number one, bah. Okay, Corbett. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I was going to say something about enjoying watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but not wanting to play the Rocky Horror Picture Show RPG. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> what if it was like the Rocky and Bullwinkle RPG and you had hand puppets? Well, no, no. See, w watch me square the circle. I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Watch it every year. Got it queued up because it's near Halloween. But you guys went to the movie theaters and dressed up, didn't you? I would never do that. I didn't dress up, but I did go to the theater and, yeah. you know, threw toast and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True enough. Fun. I thought I would have swore I heard some story of Mike and like. Oh, no, no, I did. I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Only a couple of times, but I did. Yeah. yeah I never dressed up. I Liz did go, never dressed but up. I never dressed up. I did. Although getting cast as Brad doesn't exactly involve Aww. a lot of dressing up. Mm. Except in. Oh, well. For the finale, you get to wear a corset. No, I never went that far. I never wore the corset <laughs> and the and the. No, no, no. You're destroying the vision in my head, but okay. Yeah, you would look good in a corset. No, heels. thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Which is why I wanted to be Riff Raff. Now I could totally have rocked that that silver lame outfit at the end with the hair stuck up. Now, that I could have totally done, but you know. Oh no, you, you bred. <laughs> anyway, Corbett, number one. Uh, I think I remember reading Douglas Adams and at the beginning of every chapter, he'd put a quote and he shows you something weird, like, you know, Lincoln talking about cell phones or something. It was always something off color like for Folio the character. Kind like Phil Folio did with the Myth Adventures stuff. Yeah. Or not Phil Folio, Robert Aspirin. It, it's, it's always been popular for writers to put a quote at the beginning of their, of their chapter to kind of point out what they're going to do in the chapter or just be, say something. Erudite. I got to admit the... Quotes in this that are constant are really pretentious now that I'm reading them again. <laughs> well, it was the early 90s. Yeah. I just, I remember like Douglas Adams, I remember them always being pithy and kind of fun, but I, I didn't read any of the Anne Rice books, so I don't know if she put quotes at the beginning of her chapter. No. But every oh, quote yeah. they put in here is like way, it's like, what would Morrissey write? 
he's depressed i think it's it's so down i find it it funny because i've got a, a line editor currently getting ready to work on my novel i had asked her about quoting movies or tv songs or stuff in a book mm-hmm. and she said oh you really need to stay away from that i mean you can say they were singing hotel california by the eagles but you can't actually put any of the lyrics there because the eagles will sue you if you don't get their permission and usually there's a fee involved in getting permissions mm-hmm. reading this i would bet money they didn't have permission for it any of these oh yeah now granted half of them are dead people but you know especially the song lyrics and stuff it's like yeah. oh no 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 just constant too that's the yeah. thing that i think just kept like every single almost every page practically there was a quote it was almost like a sidebar almost in in as far as con as constancy you know i found it more annoying than what was it the thing and spider-man popping in in marvel's phase rip or Do- <laughs> doom and arcade yeah. or the yeah. beast and yeah yeah it's that- like th- those were kind of funny but this is just like uh it's like a post-it note stuck on the side you just have to read anyway mm. side it's nothing big okay quotes liz? pretentious liz Okay, are we at number one? Number one. Yes, number we one. Are. All right. They go into a full section, uh, but I think it's chapter six in the book, at least in the second edition version that we're covering, creating the campaign or the chronicle, as it's referred to in the game. And I thought they had a lot of really good ideas for someone who may have never created their very own campaign world before. The elements that you can put into it that gives it a cohesion, and it really looks like it's something that's been well put together, as opposed to, I had a lot of different ideas and I just threw them in. You know, <laughs> Maybe you did have a lot of different ideas and you just threw them in, but they give you the framework that you can build around them to at least make your characters think, I put in a lot of effort and work. You know? <laughs> yeah, again, the whole thing screams like it would really work as a GM's book for helping learn how to G, you know, do a storyteller, do a GMing in any game. A lot of it could, it could be transferred to any RPG. Oh, especially with the idea of, okay, you're creating a world. What kind of theme does it have? Again, what sort of feeling do you want your world to have as your players are navigating it? So... I really enjoyed reading through that chapter. Okay. My number one. One of the things I like about the various clans is they work in each clan has a weakness. And it's usually the weaknesses that are traditional to vampires. I mean, there's some that are uniform, like sunlight, stake in the heart, which doesn't kill a vampire, but immobilizes them. You have to decapitate them to kill them. But there are individual clan weaknesses that have worked in through the bloodlines. And the one for the Bruja, the Lost Boys vampires, is a greater tendency to frenzy, which is when vampires lose control of the beast and just go in and berserk in combat. But the fun part is, in the description, is it says, Bruja deny that they have this as a weakness. In fact, if they are accused of this weakness, they grow so agitated that they are likely to frenzy. (laughs) How so very dare you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Which I thought was awesome. <laughs> I am not screeching, she screeched. <laughs> the others aren't quite as funny, but, you know, they've got their good moments here and there. Especially at this early one, I think there were just enough little bits in here and there to show they weren't taking themselves 100% seriously. Kind of like when uh, uh, Warhammer 40k first came out. It was very grimdark, but in the sidebars and other things, they put other things in there to let you know they were not being 100% grimdark serious here. Like when they were doing the incantations to Scotty the Engine Seer (laughs) to get the Starship engine to work before pressing the holy button on. (laughs) Yeah, like that. So anyway... Yes, this was when it was just the world of insufficient lighting. It got a lot more grimdark as the 90s progressed. But anyway, that's my number one. So we shall take another pod break, and then we will discuss what makes a save and what... (laughs) In the year 2000, you won't need Boy Scouts to help you cross the street. You'll need an armed guard. The traffic is murder in Death Race 2000, starring David Carradine. I was brought up in a government training center to be just what I am, the best driver on earth. Death Race 2000, the cars of the future in a cross-country road wreck. Death Race 2000, a new world picture rated R under 17, not admitted without parent. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Wars podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare Road Warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like convention or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats! Zombie robots! Day-walking vampires! Gargoyle armies! And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Ed's nuclear-powered popcorn popper, the popcorn popper that never leaves a kernel of corn unpopped. Remember, with Ed's nuclear-powered popcorn popper, Meltdown isn't just for butter anymore. What makes a save, and what is going to take? Free art! What makes the save, and what free arcs? And we're going to start this time with Liz. Makes the save. I think for me... Uh, really the true strength of the game is its emphasis on what makes a good time for everyone at the table. They have fairly streamlined combat rules. There's a baked-in flexibility with the amount of dice rolling you want to incorporate. You can have virtually none, or you can have a lot. They basically say, 
do whatever you want with this. Have all the dice if you want them. And if you don't want them and your players are happy not having them, you can do it without. Working with the players to create a campaign that everyone feels invested in. And, you know, as we've said earlier in the show, some really sound advice for both storytellers and players. And it helps everybody bring their A games to the table. What does not make the save? This is very obviously a niche setting, possibly even a niche of a niche. And despite the flexibility and all of the things that have been built into the rule system that I think are major pluses, the setting can easily be a turnoff to many players and GMs, and that will prevent a lot of people from taking more than a cursory look at the game. The tone of the setting material, as opposed to the nuts and bolts rules material. Again, as you know, Corbett mentioned, you know, with the quotes and stuff, it can sound pretentious and high-handed. And that also has the risk of being a turnoff to readers. I feel they were using language to attempt to evoke a certain feel that they hoped typical vampire game sessions would emulate, but that also has the very real danger of backfiring and just turning people away from the game before they even give it a chance. So, Yeah, instead of a campaign, it's a chronicle. Instead right. of a party, it's a troop. It's storyteller instead of a GM. They're, they really leaned heavy into that. Okay, Corbett? What makes a save? It's a pretty unique world that makes a pretty unique system that did carry on and make its mark in the gaming community. Doesn't make the save. It really overuses Onks. (laughs) (laughs) Onk, if you love ISIS. (laughs) (sighs) Onk. It's a better choice than they made in Deities and Demigods where they use an actual, they statted out actual gods who are still worshipped today. You mean like the Hindi mythos? Yeah, or Shinto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that awesome. was that was unfortunate. <laughs> okay, Jim. Um, what makes a save is this was very well written, even by today's standards, but particularly by 1990 standards. Very researched, well written, and well conceived with innovative game mechanics that we take for granted now, but were like blasts of wind off a hurricane. Back then, you know, storytelling, dice pool mechanics, all that stuff. And I think it was a very brave uh, set of design choices. Even if they're not my cup of tea or the things I imprinted on, you can't argue with the success of the thing. And diversity in anything that's not D20 is all for the better of gaming. You know, so bravo. What doesn't make the save is please don't send me any emails. I'm learning about myself as much as I was about this game, trying to read it and figure out why... I don't want to say triggered, but why it just didn't work for me. And I think what I'm coming up with is there are some specific genres that I find very entertaining in literature and movies that I don't want to role play game. And that's just me. That's not saying anything about the game. Okay. I learned something about myself in this podcast. See, save for half cares. (laughs) And now we know. Thanks, Jim. G.I. Jim. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Jim. (laughs) Thank you for your endless patience with my antics. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, mine. For what this game was trying to do, 
I think it did a very good job of it, even with the pretentiousness and even with the pros. It's easy for us to snicker at it now, but at the time, it brought a lot of new people into gaming. A lot of women actually joined the gaming directly because of Vampire or its branch-off games. So it's the first game I can recall that intentionally tried to cater itself to non-gamers, but did it in a way that wasn't, frankly, a little insulting. Which, I'm sorry, but Yellow Box, Face Rip, Marvel, I felt, even as a comics fan, was a bit insulting. It was like they were talking to eight-year-olds. So I think that was good. It gives a lot of information on storytelling, on the idea of role-playing, and how role-playing actually is superior to necessarily to just die rolling and die mechanics. You know, if you want to use them, great. But if you don't, that's okay, too which for a while there would have been heresy in the RPG industry. So that I can certainly salute. Does not make the save. And I feel a little guilty about this because this doesn't really deal with this book so much as the books that came afterwards, except in so far as how this game was written. As I inferred earlier, there was an increasing catering to the fan base, which I thought became more and more out there as far as grimdark, as being monstrous, as it's cool to be a mass murderer, it's cool, K-E-W-L, to who needs humanity if I can kill more people? I want to be able to diabolize, but I don't want that taint on my aura so everyone can tell that I drank the blood of my elder to increase my power. So I just want a power game, essentially. I want to be Sabat because they have more fun than the dumb Camarilla who actually try to occasionally even keep mortal society together. So it went from D&D to Pathfinder. Maybe. Having never played Pathfinder, I can't say. But perfect example. First edition made it very plain vampires could not have sex, period. They didn't. They did the vampiric, the kiss, what they called it, the bite to each other's necks. That was sex to them. They did absolutely no sex. Well, second edition, they suddenly changed that to, well, you can, but you have to spend a blood point. And Yeah, well, (laughs) but the point is, again, catering to the fans. And part of me as a designer is going, well, they are buying your books. Why wouldn't you cater to the fans? But another Mm -hmm. part of me is when you're trying to come down this hard on a play style, you need to own it. You need to stay the course. Because if you start flipping things just to sell a few extra books, I think you end up with what happened to Vampire and the big crash. Hey, you want that quarter in your can? You better dance, monkey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay so no, no, I, I, I hear you and it's 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 not just a well-taken point it applies to everything you know you get a bunch of success and then start climbing up your own butt to get more sales that's not a marketing strategy yeah mm. so anyway so this has been vampire before we let you go i'll remind everybody to please if you have a chance email us your questions things you want to know about save for half we're going to discuss them all in our end of year show so if you have anything you want to know that's clean it's within reason yes please send a <laughs> relatively profanity free email to save for half podcast at gmail.com or you can go to the website and use the forums, which work for everyone but DM Kojo. Well, Jim designed them that way. Oh. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did we get some bad emails? Our emails are always great. I'm just covering our bases. Okay. You know? <laughs> yes, Jim, keep talking about it and inspire someone to do that very thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just <laughs> now that we've said that, it's just kind of like. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll say chitty bye. Good night. Say good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. See ya. Bye, 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 bye. I do not say bye, 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 bye. Larry Yard. This is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks.